Are you voting in the November elections? Are you ready and feel informed? Let's be honest, we don't always turn in our ballots feeling completely confident, and we vote for the candidate whose name we recognize, or the one that seems the kindest or most relatable. If you've ever done that, don't feel bad. You are not alone. But you will want to listen to this podcast. A majority of the American people don't know that we have 100 U.S. senators. A majority of the American people don't know we have three branches of government. Uh, 70% of the American people believe that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, and it was on the basis of that belief that they favored the invasion of Iraq. This week on Mindful Headlines, author and historian Rick Shankman explains how our brains get in the way of smart politics. And the problem is, in politics, we are almost always going on instinct, which means you're almost always going wrong. We'll talk about his book, Political Animals, where Rick explores psychology to explain how emotions, biases, and impulse can influence us at the ballot box. You probably know the state of the economy can make or break an incumbent's chances, but why? And Rick says that is changing. Rick is a journalist. He's the editor and founder of the History News Network. He's won an Emmy as an investigative reporter, and he was a former managing editor at Cairo here in Seattle. He also often appears on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. He's also a presidential historian and one of the smartest people I've had a chance to chat with. So if you've ever wondered why we vote the way we do and how to become a smarter voter, this podcast is for you. So, Rick, thank you for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. As you know, we have the November general election coming up next week. And so I wanted to do a podcast on why we vote the way we vote. And by a series of really fortunate conversations, I was connected with you and to ask you a little bit about the work that you have done researching this topic. Um, You wrote a book in 2016, it was published called Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Why did you want to write about that topic? Well, four years before that, or eight years before that, I guess, um, I had written a book called Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter. And um, in the comments on the Amazon reviews, which were mostly favorable, I'm happy to report, uh, somebody said, hey, you're a historian, but you didn't talk at all about the science behind how voters think. And that was uh, basically a polemic, so I wasn't trying to get into uh, anything too deep. But uh, I thought, you know, I had not researched the science of the human brain. So that put me on a quest. And basically, uh, over uh, uh, the next uh, eight years, I spent uh, working on uh, trying to figure it out. what is it about our brains that makes our politics so stupid? Because our politics, day in and day out, just seem to turn on the dumbest of arguments uh, all around, both the left and the right. Everybody's always uh, bottom feeding and reaching for the arguments that just, they would be embarrassing if you put them forward in a classroom setting. Gee, that guy looks like a, a strong, handsome man. I think I'll vote for him. Or I'd like to have a cup of coffee with uh, that guy. And that's the reason I'm going to vote for him. I mean, what the hell? So I spent all these years studying uh, the science of uh, politics, the science as basically going into um, political uh, psychology, political science, of course, uh, that I had always studied, but I hadn't done anything with political psychology. I hadn't done anything with social psychology. I had barely heard of evolutionary psychology. So I spent all these years working on that, and that resulted in political animals. 
Well, I read the book and it's fascinating. And it taught me a lot about how sometimes I think about different issues, even as a journalist that is constantly covering, you know, what's happening with local politics and how I can even see in myself sometimes where we gravitate in one direction or another. And I want to ask you about that because in the book, you talk a lot about the human instinct, obviously, as you have in the subtitle, the Stone Age brain and how we developed in the Pleistocene era and how that has translated into modern politics. So can you give us an overview of um, what you found in that regard? It seemed like a lot of what you described in the book was that we were making decisions simply on instinct or in a split second, right? Exactly. So uh, uh, one social scientist refers to this as the elephant in the brain. Okay. Uh, there's an elephant in the brain that's actually working behind the scenes in our unconscious, not in a Freudian way, not with ego, superego, and all that stuff, uh, but just uh, the way that our brain works, our mental functions, and these are functions that evolved over millions of years to help us adapt. They're called adaptive, and what that means is they helped us adapt to the world that we're in, and for most of human history, we were not living in cities with airplanes and the internet and automobiles. Instead, we were hunter-gatherers living on off the land. And that uh, led to us developing instincts and these mental operations that helped us survive and thrive in that environment, not in the environment we're currently in. And the problem is in politics, we are almost always going on instinct, which means you're almost always going wrong because our brains aren't, didn't, aren't manufactured to help us thrive in this environment of mass uh, democracy. And we can get into this uh, more deeply. Um, and let me just say one other thing, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, we assume in a democracy that facts are what count. And Facts do count to a certain extent. Uh, if we have a Great Depression, like we had in, the, uh, in 1929, uh, well, the Republicans were in power. And after several years of living with the Great Depression, the voters revolted and gave one of the great landslides in American history to Franklin Roosevelt. So there's an example of facts on the ground affecting how people thought and changing their um, political behavior, so they switch from the Republicans, who they had put in power for a decade and given them overwhelming majorities, and now they shifted to the Democrats. So there we have a good example of facts on the ground uh, actually affecting us. But most of the time, according to social science research that I've uh, been studying, um, it's not facts on the ground which affect us. So what does affect our voting? Um, so probably, in the current environment, the most important factor is tribalism. Now, tribalism traditionally in America meant that the Irish uh, were voting uh, for Irish candidates. So John F. Kennedy uh, got uh, the overwhelming support of Irish American voters back in 1960 uh, because they identified with him. Of course, no matter what his politics were, right? They identified with him. In the current environment, it's been ramped up much more intensely. We are so polarized now along tribal identities 
which is not necessarily ethnic identities. It's a larger meaning to our tribal identity than just um, uh, where you worship or what country, European country you came from or African country you came Let from. Let me pause you um, because I would love for you to explain how that term works because I know what you're referring to. I've heard it before in this context about tribalism and how we are just tribal by nature. We gravitate towards the people that are like us, right? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, let's go back to the hunter-gatherers again, which we started with. So in the hunter-gatherer period, uh, people were living in basically small groups of 25. You were all members of the same tribe, literally, it was a tribe of people who looked the same way, they thought the same way, they behaved largely the same way. And who drew suspicion? People from the outside. On the rare occasions that they encountered people from other tribes, they were highly suspicious because these are people who they didn't know and therefore they could be vulnerable. They'd get killed. Uh, so what happened was over millennia, over millions of years, more than just a millennia, over millions of years, this pro-tribe bias really buried itself deep in our brain. And when uh, scientists try to measure tribalism in the brain, it lights up many different parts of the brain, which indicates how ancient that part of the brain is and that functioning is. It goes way, way back. Anytime a politician can activate somebody's tribal identity, man, they've got that guy's vote. We're seeing that more often, right, in politics now. Yeah, well, we're the most highly polarized that we've been since the Civil War. I mean, even in the 1960s, where uh, people were uh, divided very, very strongly between, you know, you were for the Vietnam War, you were against the Vietnam War. Um, we've not seen anything like what we're seeing now. Uh, there was just a study that came out the other day that's interesting. It says we are so highly polarized now that not even the state of the economy is differentiating uh, one voter from another voter. So it used to be that if the economy went up, then the incumbents in power, uh, their poll numbers went up. And when the economy did badly, the poll numbers of the people in power went down. That is not quite disappearing, but it's much less self-evident in the polling results. So we are now seeing that even if a Republican president is in power and the economy goes to hell, as it did during COVID, Republicans will say the economy is doing great. And Democrats, during the period of the Trump administration when the economy was doing well, and you ask them how the economy is doing, they said it's horrible. This tribalism is so strong and powerful now that we can't even agree on the same set of facts. And this is because of this mental operation that is happening behind the scenes. We're not aware of it, but it's affecting us. And it's, it's part of now our political instincts. So it's treacherous territory that we're moving into because a democracy can't work if we can't argue about the facts. The whole premise of democracy is that you can have a public argument about the facts and the person who makes the best argument is gonna be the person who we elect. Not true anymore. And so 
how do we combat our brain and those tribal instincts um, if we can't agree on the facts? I mean, how do we become smart voters? Okay, so that's a tall order. It's very, very <laughs> difficult. First, you have to become aware of what's happening in your own brain behind the scenes. You have to find out what is the elephant uh, in the brain. So to try to become more aware of our own biases. For example, here's a, uh, a bias that almost never gets talked about uh, by journalists, but it's one that really drives our politics, which is that we fear losses more than we appreciate gains. Oh. Politicians play on this. So let's think about Obamacare, okay? What did the Republicans try to do with Obamacare? They tried to oppose it. They really were adamant. They were obstructionists for, um, I think it was something like 18 months before finally the Democrats got their act together and they were able to unify around a common theme and they voted in Obamacare. Well, once the voters started experiencing the benefits of Obamacare, that was it. The GOP lost the argument. Donald Trump was president for four years. He had a Republican majority in the House and Senate for half of that time, for two years. They could not get rid of Obamacare. Why is that? Because once voters have something, they don't want to give it up. It's called loss aversion. If I give you, here's a, a great social science experiment. I loved reading about these social science experiments. This is one of my favorites. Uh, if you give somebody a coffee cup that's worth like $2, you know, it says King Five on it or something. <laughs> and I give you that coffee cup. It's worth two bucks. And once you have it, you don't want to give it up. If I say I want to give you five bucks for that $2 coffee cup, um, you're not going to give it up. You're not gonna, it's loss aversion. You don't wanna give up something that you have. And you appreciate the thing that you have more than even this getting a $5 bill for it. So that is what is operating in politics an awful lot. The whole democratic party for a century has been built around the idea of loss aversion. Many of the politicians didn't know it, but that's what was underlying their success. Once the Democrats gave Americans Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, then Obamacare, the Republicans could never take it away. And that's because of the way our brains work. And that's true whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. That's human being. We're hardwired to feel this loss aversion. Now, let's step back. You asked this brilliant question, which is, okay, what can we do about this? So one, we got to become aware of all the different ways in which our brain is operating behind the scene. Uh, David Hume back in the 18th century said, uh, we are the slave to our passions. And so you have to understand the way in which your emotions are responding. Um, now, being self-aware is not the solution though. Okay. It's, just, it's the beginning. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel prize-winning psychologist, and he got his Nobel Prize in part for his research in loss aversion. And he says, you know, even though I'm fully aware of all the biases that uh, I've identified through a lifetime of research, I'm hardly any better prepared than anybody else to falling victim to them. Even when you're aware of them, it's not necessarily so that you can catch yourself when you are reacting to one of these biases. Okay. So that's just got to clear that up. 
but I do think it's helpful to be aware of them. Now, is there anything that we can do? And why were politics for so many generations in America, they seem to be operating at a better level than they are now. Something has changed that has made us so polarized today to the point where basically what's energizing the Republicans is taking down the Democrats. And what's energizing the Democrats, well, they've got a actually, they actually have a platform. There's, I don't want to engage in both siderism here. There is a real difference between the Republicans and Democrats right now. The Republicans don't seem to have any agenda except lower taxes. That's the only thing that unites their party in terms of the substance. And Democrats have a whole host of issues on which they agree, uh, which is embodied in the infrastructure bill and then this reconciliation bill they keep talking about in Congress. Uh, but also Democrats really want to see the Republicans taken down a notch. Right. Uh, they want to see Donald Trump squished. They want to see him under arrest. They want to see him in jail, right? So both parties are animated strongly by negative emotions and by anger. And what do we know about anger? We know that an angry electorate doesn't compromise. When we are angry, we don't want to sit down with somebody on the other side and try to work out a deal. Anger doesn't work that way. So we are in one of the most angry moments. It's the most angry moment, I think, since the Civil War. Wow. And in just making that analogy, I don't make it lightly, and I resisted making it. I'm a historian by training. I resisted making it for many years. And then finally, January 6th, that, that's it. That, that, that ended the debate in my own mind about that. Um, no, this is, we are at this danger point as we were during the Civil War, the only thing that's really saving us, I think, from having a Civil War, to be honest with you, is that it's not geographical. It's not um, a, along a neat line where there are the people in the South believing uh, one thing and the people in the North and the West believing something else. Right, it's um, everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, except in the Northeast. The Northeast is an ideological uh, democratic island, more or less, but the rest of the country in any, in any state, just look at Washington state, right? We've got, um, I suppose it is geographical here. It's the people who are west of the mountains who tend to be uh, among the Democrats and more liberal. And on the other side of the mountains, of course, it's more Republican. So we do have that kind of geographical thing. Uh, but not even but, all of Western Washington would identify as Democrat. No, no, go down to Renton and you're gonna find a lot of blue collar Republicans there, right? So. It's complicated. So I don't think we're gonna actually, it's, the fact that it's not geographical is actually reassuring to me because it means that uh, we can't just slip mindlessly into some civil war. I mean, this would be a very bizarre civil war um, if it's not this group over here versus this group over here. Mm -hmm. If it's the guy across the street, well, you can't have a civil war under those circumstances. There's too much diffusion. But um, we're in this angry, angry state. So you talked about solutions. So the number one solution is to lower the temperature. We've got to lower the temperature. If we're all in an angry mode, we're just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, Obama talked about uh, the fever breaking, but I don't think it's a matter of a fever breaking. Politics is not biological. I think there are some real differences between the way politics 
are playing out today compared with how they used to play out. So it used to be that people took their cues, ordinary voters took their cues from institutions, churches, their preachers, if they were in a union, and 25% of workers in the 1950s were in unions, and that meant their union leaders. And three, they took their cues from gatekeepers, media gatekeepers, and party leader gatekeepers. So politics wasn't everybody on their own. You didn't just like range through the internet and find or have social media shove through an algorithm uh, bizarre claims about vaccines or conspiracies and all this stuff, and you on your own kind of figured it out. Um, you were getting your views filtered through institutions. That kept us on uh, the straight and narrow. It limited us to a certain extent. It meant that uh, our political debates were conducted within walls, so they were fairly narrow. Uh, and you often found radicals complaining about that. You know, and how many times um, in American history did people complain about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party duopoly? That you can't get a third party in there to be taken seriously, right? So third parties would come along, the Populist Party in the 1880s, uh, George Wallace's American uh, Independent Party in the 1960s, um, Ross Perot in the 1990s, but they pop up and then they disappear because the two parties have entrenched themselves in our laws, in our lives, in our politics, and we can't get out of it. Well, I am all in favor of the two-party system because voters left to their own don't know who to turn to, and most of them don't have PhDs. They're not they don't have the time to go focus enough on politics to be able to sift the garbage from the reality. So they become very susceptible to conspiracy theories. Social media is this new institution that has replaced the old gatekeepers. You know, there's no, people don't turn to Walter Cronkite anymore or media leaders anymore. They turn to their Facebook page and all kinds of crap can show up there. Yes. And that's the problem. So I think uh, we can't get rid of social media, but I do think we can strengthen the old institutions. So that, that means strengthening labor unions. When you are a member of a labor union and you're trying to figure out who's good for the working man, well, you're going to turn to your labor leader and say, Who's good for the working man? I don't have the time to figure this out. You know, I'm working my job. I'm taking care of my family. You figure it out and let me know, which is how it used to work. Right now, we're down to, you know, just, I think, 6% of uh, Americans are in uh, labor unions now. We need to drive that up. You drove that. If you drive that up to 25%, that alone would change our politics because labor unions, if you're 25% of the working people or a member of a labor union, think of the ever widening circles of people who would be affected by that. It's not just me who's working, but it's my, my kids are gonna find out what the labor leaders are telling them. My spouse, if she or he is, is not in the labor union, they're gonna find out. 
And all of a sudden, the level of the conversation is going to be much, much higher. So I think there's that. I think that uh, government needs to regulate uh, social media to the extent that uh, they get punished when their algorithm rewards uh, uh, hate speech. And honestly, I don't know mechanically how you do that. Uh, I know that some very bright people are working on it to try to figure that out. I don't have that answer, but I know that that's the problem that needs to be focused on. So that's my answer to your question. Very long-winded answer. I apologize. I have um, a lot of questions to get to uh, regarding some of the upcoming um, things that voters are going to see on their ballots. But before we leave this topic, I will say that um, I got my master's in national security. And um, one of the things that I studied when um, I was looking at institutions and how important role they play in our society, one of the things I noted was that um, when the institutions and our confidence in institutions starts to erode, that is like the beginning of the end for a lot of societies. And so it scares me to hear you say all of this because even though I know it and I have researched it myself, um, it's a reminder that we are seeing our institutions break down. And the reality is we have more Americans that are not participating in religious life. Um, that has you know, um, been going on for several decades. And then we have the erosion of, of the traditional media, like you mentioned, Walter Cronkite's of the world, where we have all of this information coming at us. Um, on social media. And then we have an erosion of even safety in certain institutions like our educational system. That was what my thesis project was on about how um, no longer do parents necessarily feel safe sending their children to school, um, physically safe. And then now we're getting into the debate in these past years about like um, ideologically safe, right? So um, it scares me to think about that in that way because then I wonder, you know, is it just a slippery slope? And as you said, so many people are trying to navigate, especially when we talk about politics, all of the information that's coming at them on their own. Um, and it seems a little bit daunting, to be honest. Yeah, it's daunting. So there are two things that um, occur to me uh, in response to what you just talked about. Uh, and they're both very, very important parts of this conversation. So I'm glad we're talking about them. Uh, one is uh, the uh, ignorance of um, voters overall, and the other is trust. So if I forget to get back to the trust issue, let me just talk about the ignorance issue, and you remind me, okay? Correct. So, okay, ignorance. Um, we have 100 U.S. senators. We've had 100 U.S. senators since, the, uh, since 1959 when Alaska and Hawaii came in. So it's a nice, big, round number. A majority of the American people don't know that we have 100 U.S. senators. A majority of the American people don't know we have three branches of government. During the Iraq war, uh, the polling was very clear uh, that a majority of the American people, in fact, on the eve of the Iraq war, 70% of the American people, according to a Washington Post poll that was taken right at that time around March 2003, 70% uh, of the American people believed that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11 and it was on the basis of that belief that they favored the invasion of Iraq, which made sense, but it wasn't true. It wasn't true. The Bush administration never actually connected the dots, but they kept putting these dots out there by talking about Saddam Hussein 
in the context of 9-11 so much that people naturally drew the conclusion. So gross ignorance is a huge part of this problem. And I'm not saying the American people are stupid. The problem is that the American people are human beings and human beings, we were built, designed, we evolved to pay attention to small groups of 25 people, which is about how big, 25 to 50 to 150 people. That's how big our hunter-gatherer groups were. So when your group is that small, you can find out the facts, the basic facts about all the important things that are happening uh, when you're making political decisions, right? And they had politics back then, just like we do now. But when you have millions, hundreds of millions of people like we have in modern societies in the United States, right, over 300 million people, just getting a basic understanding of the facts is very, very difficult. If you are trying to put food on the table or you're getting an education or whatever it is you're involved, there are so many things to distract us. Uh, you know, maybe it's just playing video games, but it's not sitting there reading the New York Times every day or reading the Wall Street Journal every day or reading National Review or the Weekly Standard when it was in existence. So that's one big piece of this problem. The other big piece of the problem, and fortunately, I'm having a good day. I've remembered trust. <laughs> trust. Okay. So trust is really important. Democracy doesn't work unless people trust each other. Because if you don't trust each other, you don't trust the information the other side is talking about. You don't trust that they may disagree with you on a policy, but they are still good people. They're good Americans. They're not un-American. But beginning in the mid-1960s, the level of trust in America plummeted, began plummeting. There are a bunch of factors of this. It went from the overwhelming majority of Americans, like 75% of Americans in the early 1960s, believed that government leaders most of the time would do the right thing for the country. 75%. That's high. After, that's high. After Vietnam and then inflation, which eroded people's confidence in society, it's inflation, when it gets really serious, like we had, you know, 10, 12% inflation a year, that erodes people's confidence that the leaders know what they're doing and, and makes people feel just very uneasy. There was uh, Watergate, there was Iran-Contra. You add all that up to get to the point where today, confidence in our leaders' ability to do the right thing most of the time is down around 20, 30%. So we have been running since the late 1960s, a social experiment, which is where we're all the guinea pigs. Can democracy survive and thrive in such an environment where trust is so low? We don't have the answer to that. But beneath Trumpism and the threats to our democracy, this is the number one issue that's hovering there. It's a lack of trust. Let's talk a little bit about that in the local context, because um, one of the big races is for Seattle mayor. And the two candidates running, Lorena Gonzalez and Bruce Harrell, are both Democrats. And if you look at some of their talking points, they are very similar. And I know in your book, you outline how people maybe have a feeling toward one versus another candidate, and that's how they vote. But what should voters be looking at? Because they are very closely aligned on a lot of issues. There's a couple key ones that we can get into that they are not. 
um, so closely aligned, but they're both Democrats and they both um, share pretty similar views. So how do we navigate something like that? What uh, the candidates are both doing is trying to find wedge issues that will differentiate one from the other. And then they're hoping that there's a majority behind their wage issue, right? So you've got Gonzalez. I mean, the big issue, I think, is homelessness. That seems to be the one that when you get all the campaign literature in the mail, that's what everybody's talking about. If you go on the next door neighbor app, that's the big issue every single night when I go and I check out the feed. It's like, oh, that's what everyone's thinking about. You know, they're complaining about homeless people who are in their parks. And that means they don't feel comfortable walking with their kids through parks like Green Lake or whatever. Uh, so that is the issue. Now they have Gonzalez and Harold have come up with different approaches to that, right? That's the wedge issue. And they each have their own approach. So uh, Lorena Gonzalez is making the argument that she doesn't want to just uh, with a bulldozer come in and clear these places out. That's anti-liberal, that makes liberals feel uncomfortable. So you've got Gonzalez trying to tap into the old liberal, um, let's do something for these, these folks, but leave them alone uh, until we come up with a solution. Now, on the other side, you've got the former uh, head of the city council who is saying, we need to reclaim our parks. And he's been fuzzy exactly about how he's going to do that, but he's uh, all but pulling out a bullhorn and saying, I've had enough of this, you've had enough of this, and I'm going to do something about it somehow, some way. I'm going to uh, kick the homeless people out of uh, the parks. And uh, he says he's going to build 2,000 housing units in the first year. Um, so he's got something um, fairly concrete, but 2,000 housing units isn't going to help. I don't know how many we've got out there, 13,000 or something. I think. Yeah, I don't one. know the exact number, but it's higher than 2,000. But it's, it's, it's huge. Yeah, I mean, I've ridden my bike to go uh, from Queen Anne, where I lived, over to uh, Columbia City, to the Columbia City Bakery, oh. uh, which for people in your audience is the best bakery in Seattle. Um, <laughs> and uh, just along the way, it's just unbelievable. It's homeless camp after homeless camp after homeless camp. So 2,000 uh, units is a nice start. It's good. But obviously, we're going to have to spend a lot more money and put a lot more effort into this. So what we have here is two candidates who share the Democratic Party's general framework, right? They're not Trumpy Republicans, uh, but they're trying to distinguish one from the other. Yeah, it'll be interesting how to see how that plays out for voters. Let me ask you this, just on a personal note, do you love like when November rolls around and you get to see how people actually do react to some of the issues that are on the ballot? Well, sure, because every single election is a test of my own assumptions <laughs> about how politics works, right? We, um, people who study politics uh, wind up having a theory of how American politics works. So I've got a theory. You've heard a lot of my theory of how American politics works. Uh, on this podcast. And it's every election is a test of the theory. And I'll tell you, after every election, I wind up making adjustments. Because <laughs> the theory is never perfect, right? Yeah. So I learned something new about American voters after every election. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I got to incorporate this part 
into my theory now. So I make some adjustments. Tell me a little bit about how you think the human brain works when we're having to weigh um, a decision that could affect our wallet right now versus, um, you know, just increasing our taxes by 10 cents. But in the long term, it's going to benefit some Sometimes it's not something even that we can see concretely. It's a little bit more nebulous, you know, like the gas tax, if we increase it, as an example, then that money will go toward cleaner air. That's hard for voters to really understand some of those choices. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, um, first, I will quote uh, Daniel Kahneman, the social scientist who won the Nobel Prize for coming up with loss aversion. Um, he says our brains are lazy. And basically what that means is we go by instinct um, rather than stepping back and thinking holistically about, oh, here's a problem, here's a policy uh, we could take to solve it. And it's gonna require some short-term pain, uh, but long-term we're all gonna be better off, right? Okay, so he says, uh, because our brains are lazy, we don't engage in that kind of thinking, hardly ever. And I think he's absolutely right about that. I, I've seen no social studies that, Science, uh, studies that indicate that the American people are ever thinking about the long term. We as human beings respond to the immediate. Uh, this was clear to the founding fathers. Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist Papers, talks about how uh, voters respond to immediate concerns. They're not worried about the long term. At the same time, it is very clear from the research that people don't necessarily vote their own self-interest. They will vote against their own self-interest and they will do it on the basis that it's going to be better for society. So this is, it, there's a fancy name for this. It's called sociotropic voting. And basically it means that we think we're going to, we go into the voting booth and what we want to do is the best for society, for our community. But here's the rub, whose community? when the voting population was basically nearly all white and mostly Protestant and mostly people who went off to church, voters were much more willing to vote for benefits for the underserved communities. Uh, this is the um, electorate that basically went to the polls in the 1930s when FDR was in charge and he was trying to push through uh, his New Deal program. Today, the white people are still the majority, but uh, we're reaching a point where minorities are going to be the majority. Now, when white people go into the voting booth, are they voting for what's best for a community of minorities? The answer is no, no. Um, so this is the challenge that we have in a multicultural, multiracial society like we live in today, where people wanna do what's right for the community, but their community as they define their community. So it's, it's, it is, it's a challenge. It's, it's, a, real, it's a real problem. So um, give us your tips when obviously you're immersed in politics, you love politics and you're a historian. So you know a lot about, um, well, actually, I let me ask a lot less now. <laughs> it used to be a lot more fun. <laughs> it's not as much fun anymore. 
I never, I never understood that. You know, social scientists would always say that Americans were apathetic about politics because anytime politics came up, it made them feel bad. And I never understood that finding. Uh, and now in the last four years, ever since Donald Trump got elected, it's like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why they feel upset about politics. It's not a fun game. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but I have to work <laughs> um, Well, I was going to say, um, give us some of your tips. I mean, I know that, you know, you've studied a lot on this topic, et cetera, and you've written books about it. But, um, you know, when the election season rolls around, is there a best way to study the issues and study the candidates that you've found through the years or that you've advised people that are not so immersed in politics? Well, sure. I mean, the, the simple answer is make sure that you get your information from reliable mainstream sources and make sure that you are exposing yourself to viewpoints that are both liberal and conservative. If you just uh, take a homogenous view to politics and you're only listening to your own side, well, you're never going to understand the issues really in depth. And um, you're not going to uh, have any arguments uh, in your own head about what the, the best way forward is. Turn to thoughtful Republicans so that you can at least understand what thoughtful people are doing. And for the Republicans in the audience of this podcast, I'd say, turn to the thoughtful uh, people among uh, Democrats. I would say this, I, you know, I go around the country, at least before COVID, and I would give lectures on politics. And uh, at the end, uh, people would always come up with this question that, that you have wisely come up with. And what I would say is, you know, I want you to think about, instead of wasting time watching political commercials or reading uh, newsletters that come from one party or the other party, take all that time to spend one, five minutes a day reading either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Maybe dip into the National Review or some uh, of one of the little magazines that represents a strong point of view one way or the other, or go online and, and seek these out. Seek out responsible organs of opinion, both sides, so that you can then uh, decide for yourself, oh, here's what the debate is, and oh, they're saying this about this, and they're saying this about this, and I get it. If you only listen to your own side, uh, you're going to have a warped view of reality. That's just, so what do I do? I'm, I read the New York Times religiously every single day. I have since the eighth grade. Um, you know, for me, it's like the holy writ. Uh, even though I see all kinds of uh, biases in their reporting. Uh, but basically, you know, I know that I'm going to get the facts right. And then I'll dip into the Wall Street Journal and these other uh, organs of opinion to try to get uh, some balance. And here's what I always say to my lecture audiences. I say, if you are in New York City and you walk around Wall Street, you will see that the people who run this country, they have the Wall Street Journal under their arm in the morning and they have the New York Times under their arm. If you go to Washington DC, they have the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post under their arm. Now, these are the people who run this country. So they think, that you can figure out the basic facts of what's going on in this world from those newspapers. And I think that is the case. So that's my strong recommendation if you're really trying to be uh, a good citizen. That's great advice. Um, and I also, 
um, would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. I know that you founded the George Washington University History News Network, and you're a historian. And I want to ask you, because I've done some related podcasts. Um, I did one about hatred and when there was a rise in anti-Asian American hate. Yeah. And I spoke to the Luke, Wing Luke Museum and um, someone there. We, we talked a little bit about um, if history can combat hate. And you mentioned ignorance and a lot of voters, um, and you said the American people aren't stupid, but we can be ignorant or we don't take the time maybe to study. Do you think studying history helps? I absolutely do. And I've been studying history for uh, my entire adult life, ever since uh, really I read Richard Hofstetter's The Age of Reform in the summer between 10th grade and 11th grade and it opened my eyes to a whole new world and set me on the course I've been on ever since. History is not like a, um, a secret code book though. It's not like you can go in there and find answers. Uh, what you can do is get context so you can understand how issues evolved in a certain way and understand cause and effect. Oh, this happened, then this happened. So the Great Depression happened, and then the American people rose in revolt against the Republicans who brought the Great Depression, and they elected FDR, and we got the New Deal. So you start to understand uh, cause and effect. It's not like historians are gods on Mount Olympus writing sacred writs. So every generation rewrites its own history in light of what it's discovering about itself. So before the civil rights uh, revolution, historians never took the black man's side in American history in telling that story. It was always the white man's story. And then beginning with the civil rights revolution, opening the eyes of historians, all of a sudden we had to go back and rewrite all of American history. And then when you had the women's revolution, up. Once again, we got to rewrite all of American history because it was all told from a male perspective. Now we're going to tell it from a woman's perspective. And then, well, it just goes on and on like that. And so every generation gets new insights into who we are as a people. And we go back as historians and we say, oh, look what we missed. It's so obvious now. So it makes history very exciting and very interesting. I think it deepens your understanding of where we are today. Um, without a sense of history, I think you go insane. I think a society would go insane. We have to manufacture a history, even if we think that we don't care for history. Um, if we didn't have the founding fathers, we'd have to invent them. And in fact, we did kind of invent them. Um, they were just a bunch of guys who sat around a room in Philadelphia for a few months during a hot sweltering summer, and they came up with the Constitution. Right. Yeah, we and, elevated uh, them certainly, right, and made them pretty godlike. Exactly. We we turned them into heroes and demigods. Yeah. Well, we manufactured them. They were just normal people. They recognized that they were normal people. They did not think of themselves as demigods. They knew that they were smart people. They were all pretty pretty brainy. But um, it's only because we needed this story. We needed to tell ourselves a story. And part of what is so difficult about our current period is we're disagreeing about the American story. So um, whose history are we celebrating? That's a big part of our problem. That's what all these school board controversies are about. And it's because history changes. And you know what? Uh, it, it's very upsetting when our history changes before us. We got it all within a hundred or a thousand pages in a textbook we learned and memorized. 
supposedly in high school and college and that's it. That's not history, that ain't history. Right, it threatens our um, sense of identity, right, as a community. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of our big problems. We need to come up with a new story of America that uh, all Americans, no matter where they're from, can kind of unite around. Now, I, I, I can, I've written about it, so I've come up with certain stories for myself, uh, having uh, succeeded yet in persuading the American people to buy my vision. <laughs> um, well, hey, speaking of history, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your title of your book, Political Animals, comes from a quote from Aristotle, is that correct? And um, let me ask you, do you believe that we really are political animals? Yeah, um, Aristotle uh, wrote famously that uh, human beings are political animals, and he's absolutely right. And what he meant by that is we're constantly uh, trying to figure out uh, who's, who's on top, who's on bottom, who's making their way toward the top, and where uh, our place in the social status firmament is. Uh, that's politics at its most basic level. And human beings are really good at politics. We come by this naturally. And it's because in the hunter-gatherer stage, even in a community of 25 people or 150 people, there was politics, right? It was all about uh, the guy who goes out and kills um, uh, a deer or a bear or a lion and brings back meat, uh, which they cook over a fire or something, right? That's, uh, that guy is gonna be elevated and the community is naturally going to turn to him um, when making big decisions because geez, he's a leader, right? So um, we, we're still doing that. The problem that we face is that we're not in a small group of 25 or 150 people. We're in a group of millions. And that is a problem because our natural understanding of politics is really only suitable for a small group. So I can give you a very concrete example of this, um, empathy. Um, human beings have survived because we are a cooperative, empathetic, a community of individuals and we help each other out. You'll never see two primates, two apes in Africa carrying a log together. They don't cooperate like that. We humans do, that's our superpower. Well, here's the problem. In the modern world, our empathy doesn't work. It works when we're one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, if I see you get attacked by somebody, my brain's gonna kick in action. I'm gonna kick that guy's ass, right? He's attacking me because uh, I have natural empathy. But if you're watching the news on TV and you're seeing bombs literally dropped in a foreign country like Syria, let's say, uh, or Iraq uh, or Afghanistan, it's like, I mean, this is what we do here, you know, in my family, uh, we sit and watch the news while we're eating dinner. And we're seeing all kinds of horrible things happening. And you know what's not being activated? My natural empathy. Now, if it's a really gruesome picture, which most of the time on TV we don't show, um, then I'll react. But most of the time, it's just the anchor comes on and says, you know, uh, horrible bombing in Syria today. You know, 10 families were killed. And, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting there eating dinner. It's like, I'm not throwing up. If I was there right watching this, I'd be throwing up. I'd be... A, a mess, a physical mess over it, but I'm not. That's the problem because 
in a mass community like we live in now, things are happening and we have to create policies to deal with the things that are happening, but we are not feeling them viscerally. Now, politicians are always trying to uh, appeal to our emotions so that we do feel things viscerally. And sometimes they're even trying to make us feel more empathetic toward people who live in faraway countries. But most of the time, our political debates are rigged in favor of right-wingers who want to take action in foreign places where we don't have an immediate connection to the people on the ground who are facing the consequences of our actions. So we'll say, let's start dropping bombs on this country or that country that we perceive to be a threat. But it doesn't trigger our natural empathetic reaction. I tell the story in the book about uh, Frida Kirchway, who was a, a famous uh, journalist in the 1950s who wrote for The Nation, among other publications. And she was writing during the Korean War when we undertook a massive bombing campaign that was just, we were obliterating villages after villages. And um, it's the first war in which we, where American air power was, it was dominant. We were unchallenged in the air, in the air and we could bomb anywhere we wanted to. Um, and she said, once the American people discover what we're doing, what the government is doing in our name, they're going to revolt. Of course, it didn't happen. It didn't happen because the American people didn't care. You know what they cared about? They cared about winning. That was the only thing they cared about. That's a consistent finding in our social sciences. When we go to war, the only thing we care about is winning. Um, so we don't care if people are dying. We don't know them. We don't, we're not feeling it. So this is part of what our challenge, another part of our challenges. We've got a lot of challenges. Man, in the course of this hour podcast, <laughs> think of all the challenges I've given the American people. <laughs> no kidding. We're going to have time to, you know, uh, have breakfast before they have to start working on all these challenges. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say I could talk to you for hours. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to remind people of as we do look toward the November elections? Well, here, there's... One optimistic finding of social science literature, most of the findings have been so dreadful that we've folks, I'd like to end on a happy note. Okay. So there's a theory called the theory of effective intelligence, um, which uh, uh, George Marcus, a social scientist at uh, Williams came up with, with a couple other people uh, in the 1990s. And I think it gives us hope. And what it says is that people are wedded to their views, especially when they're angry, but when they feel anxiety and anxiousness, that's when their brains shift from being closed-minded to being open-minded. So you get a physical feeling in your stomach that arises from the mismatch between what you think about how the world works and how you discover it actually works. So you watch a story on King Five that totally undermines your idea of who the homeless people are or who uh, uh, Asians are. And all of a sudden you're left with, if you take a moment to think about it, it's like, wow, this is making me uncomfortable because I thought Asians were all smart and rich. And here I'm saying there's, let's merge these two stories that I've suggested. Uh, there are Asians who are homeless. Now, all of a sudden, 
I feel a little queasy. I literally feel a physical queasiness. That is what opens our minds up. It's fascinating. In other words, we have a physical reaction, an emotional reaction that makes us more rational. We usually pit emotion against reason. In fact, what the social science literature is now showing is that emotion is vital to reason. That's mind blowing. That's that is awesome. mind blowing. Yes, it is. Because I would never have paired the two. Exactly. And it makes me much more optimistic because it means people can change their views. All you have to do is make them a little anxious. Don't make them angry. If you make them angry, they lock down, they become dogmatic. But if you can make them anxious, you can open their minds. That's really promising. That's optimistic. Rick, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. What a pleasure. You're so great. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Once again, that was Rick Shankman, author, journalist, and historian. You can find a link to Rick's book, website, and the History News Network in our show notes. I'm Jessica Janner Castro, and you've been listening to the Mindful Headlines podcast. My goal with each episode is to understand how our minds influence current events so we can better understand our world inside and out. Make sure to subscribe for more episodes and please share with your friends and family. I'll see you next time. 